The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Thanks to see everybody. So nice to see sunlight on our Sunday evenings. Usually once a month I, I review practically how the center operates, but also remind us of this. Really the essence of all the awareness practice we do is in support of living in a more free way. And one way to talk about that freedom is a natural recognition of a cycle of giving and receiving. And to begin to recognize that in any moment, some places in life will be relatively easy to notice this movement of giving and receiving. Other places in our lives, it, it's going to be more tight. And it's going to feel more like uh, you know, two opponents, two competing forces trying to get what they need to survive some kind of competition or some kind of struggle. Even our beautiful marriages or personal intimate relationships can feel sometimes like a war and sometimes like a beautiful circle of giving and receiving. And so Common Ground, well, we thought, we should aspire to be at the more beautiful end of the spectrum. So there's a beautiful circle of giving and receiving, not a fear-based system, not a greed-based system, a struggle-based system. So the leaders, we all plan or we all work at doing everything as a gift. And then as participants, all of us are participants, and we practice actually receiving the gift as a free gift, no strings attached, and seeing if it could possibly be a cause for happiness for us, that it's a free gift. The community that's here tonight, the building, these ancient teachings, the whole thing is a free gift. And so our job is to take that in, to reflect on it. It's actually pretty hard when somebody's really generous and not expecting anything in return, we're suspicious. It's like, is this really right? What do they want? What are they trying to get? So we have to practice receiving it until we actually start to feel some happiness from the gift. And then if and when you feel inspired to give because you feel inspired to give, then you have to look at that, like how can I do that? How can I give back in a way that makes me happy, that feels good? If we give too much or too little, it won't feel right. Or give in the wrong way, a way that doesn't really fit in our life. It won't feel right. It would be some sort of reverberation afterwards. Like we gave too much and now we can't take care of our other needs or responsibilities. Or we've held back because of a lot of ancient fear that we have programmed in. Some of us, my generation at least, you know, we were raised by people like my parents who are both dead now, but they kind of came of age during the, my parents grew up in farms in Montana and North Dakota, so the Dust Bowl in the 30s. And so they just have this very tight relationship to money, generally speaking. And then, you know, I was this young, receptive child. I just sort of, it got imprinted in me. And so, you know, I have a particular, I have to look at that because it gets in the way of me being happy and free. So all of us, we have our own programming around money, around giving and receiving. And 
every single relationship in our life is a way to illuminate that, to see it, and to practice becoming more free in our intimate relationships, in our relationships with our family or parents, with our friends, with your kids, with your colleagues at work, with your local Buddhist meditation center, you know, whatever it is, what does that cycle look like? So Common Ground, our expenses are around a quarter million a year, and we that, that money seems to come in. And it seems to me <laughs> hard to believe how that happens, but it does happen year after year after year because people want to give, evidently. And if they don't want to give, then they're not doing their job to sort of find a way to respond that feels good. Maybe they're giving too much. Maybe people need to look at that. Or maybe people are holding back. Maybe they need to look at that. And the same with volunteering as it is with contributing. And of course, you can get more detail. There is a handout next to the donation bowl that has some specifics and on the website. And soon we'll have a square up uh, credit card reader for people who don't carry cash or checks anymore. So people can do it that way. And if you have any questions, just see me or you can talk to Tom at the end of the program tonight or connect with the office at some point. So we've been looking at the Eightfold Path. The first Dharma talk the Buddha gave, he talked about this way that is liberating for our mind. And it involves taking this practice of mindful awareness, the simple, stable, clear, kind presence, right? That in a, in a, it's a little funny to say it this way. We don't really believe it. But in a way, it is the natural, ordinary state of the mind, which always begs the question, why is it so much work if it's the natural, inherent state of the mind? Why is mindfulness so much work? Well, just because it's the natural, ordinary state of the mind doesn't mean it's the habit of the mind, right? So the habit of the mind might be to be fear, fearful or needy or neurotic in some way. But it's a habit. It's not the nature of the mind when habits are abandoned. What is the nature of the mind not driven, not colored by habit energy? What's that nature? Well, that's what we call the ordinary mind or the nature of mind. It's the mind not colored by the habit energy of being raised by two parents who grew up in the Dust Bowl in the 30s, like me, right? That mind, that's the mind we're interested in. So the Buddha laid out a path, and it's all about using this mindful awareness to purify whatever this mind-body thing is, that's what we purify. So he talks about it in three ways. Actually, eight ways, it's an eightfold path, but you can divide the path into three areas. It's just simpler to remember. So we use awareness, mindful awareness, to purify view, the deepest, more, more subtle ways the mind relates or the beliefs that are just there. They're so there, we don't question them. Like the belief in being apart from the world. Me experiencing the world out there. That sense of separation, that self being apart from the whole or the world or nature, that is a view or a belief that doesn't get questioned because it's so subtle and so intertwined with all mental activity that it doesn't, it's not easily seen. 
but that doesn't mean it's not active. So we bring awareness to the most subtle aspect of this experience as a human being, purifying the view. We call that work wisdom, the work of wisdom. Wisdom purifies view or understanding. And then we have the work of sila or ethical conduct or this world of integrity where we're using mindful awareness to purify our relationships to common ground, to each other, to our parents, to our body, to our pets, to our lovers, to those who, and who have power over us, to those we have power over. We purify all of our relationships. So this is the more gross part of practice. So we have view, the most subtle, our activity in the world, our relationships to the world. It's the most gro- more gross. And then we have the middle, which is mental activity, the activity of the mind. It's sort of the intermediary between view and action, right? So we purify all three. We use the same tool, a simple, kind, clear, stable presence, non-judging, not trying to fix. The mindful awareness, its agenda is to understand. That's the only agenda If you have any other agenda, it's not mindful awareness or it's not mindfulness with wisdom. Mindfulness, what we mean by mindfulness, the kind of presence we're cultivating is a non-judging awareness. So the transformation comes from understanding what's arising, not from me trying to fix something because I don't like it or I think it's bad or me trying to hold on to something because I think it's good. That's a different motivation and a different kind of awareness then. So we've talked for the last few months on right view and the purification of view or understanding. Now we're talking about this middle section of the path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So that's how the Buddha organizes bringing awareness to our relationships. So we've been talking about right speech and our homework for those who weren't here last week. What happens when we bring this balanced presence to our speech and in particular to the commitment or to the mind's relationship to truth-telling or how we rationalize bending the truth, leaving some of the truth out, using falsehoods intentionally, Like the Buddha once said to his son who became a novice monk when he was seven or eight years old. And uh, a little bit after he sort of joined the monks, started wandering with the monks, then uh, the Buddha talked to him about that if you're willing to tell a deliberate lie, an intentional lie, if if you're willing to intentionally hold back on the truth or bend the truth or lie, then he says, there's nothing you're, you can't convince yourself to do. You know, no evil, no unskillful act you can't rationalize or justify or make yourself do it, if you can intentionally lie. And notice that, like now that we're becoming, cultivating a more steady presence, notice how bad it feels after the fact when you catch yourself intentionally holding something back from somebody you care about or even somebody you don't care about. Even something, you know, it just sort of came out. 
but you, you noticed, oh, that wasn't quite right. And if you really, if you're willing to feel that uneasiness of heart, you might be inspired to go back to that person and say, you know, you maybe didn't even notice, but I said this and that actually wasn't exactly right. This is more close to the truth as I know it. So it's really interesting to look at that commitment to truth. And as a lot of our teachers have said through the lineage of Buddhist practitioners, this commitment to truthfulness in our speech is very much related to the very essence of our practice. You know, we're cultivating mindful awareness in order to connect with the truth of our experience, like to not shade it, not color it. Because, you know, it's very easy to be dishonest with ourselves where we, um, our experience is colored to fit our ideas, our view. So we're, something happens, but there's a very strong interpretation going on because we're afraid of incongruencies like our actual experience not lining up with our view. So if we think somebody's a jerk, you know, we practice experiencing them to confirm our belief. Or if we think somebody is like God or special or wonderful, then we, same thing, we shade the experience we have with that person. These, you know, we call, and then if we do that long enough, it just becomes unconscious. It's like a prejudice. We don't even realize it. One of the things we sent out a couple of weeks ago, maybe, I think we sent it out to everybody. Shelley and I sent it out to everybody on the email list, the weekly email list, some 3,000 of you. And uh, just talking about some of the work that's going on at the center about looking at uh, the experience of privilege and looking at our relationship to difference uh, around race, around sexual orientation, how one orients around gender, around class, economic difference. And there's this thing that um, I think originally was developed at Harvard this in looking at implicit biases. And you can do this thing online. It's shocking. At least it was for me. If you haven't done it, I look it up or find that email or send us an email and we'll send you the link. Or if, I think if you just Google implicit bias and Harvard, you'll probably get the link. And you'll see that although we don't want to be prejudiced, we don't want to um, assume that somebody who you know, has a brown skin is this way or somebody with white skin is this other way, we do have biases. They're just there. And they get acted out through our culture, like it or not. So we have to appreciate this, um, what we're up against when we commit to the truth. We have to have a lot of humility that there's some work for us to do not just with our speech, but even more profoundly with how we experience our experience because we're coloring it all the time, shading it because we're, we don't like the incongruency when our experience doesn't line up with our view, our understanding, our beliefs. So we color our experience. So we want to, if we're interested in this path of awakening, We want this commitment to truth to be all the way through. And if we can't do it with speech, it's going to be 
much harder to do with this more subtle part of a practice, which is this honesty, this direct, immediate, honest, truthful acknowledgement of what we're experiencing. Sensation as sensation, mood as mood. Instead of the biases we have, you know, and how we interpret our sensation and our emotion and our thought. So the Buddha asks us, like, when we want to speak, and this is what he told uh, Rahula, his son, after telling him, you know, there isn't anything bad you couldn't do if you can justify a deliberate lie. And he used some very sort of simple, provocative images of what that's like to be telling a lie, like, you're empty, you're upside down, you're hollow. I mean, he had all these sort of images. And then he said, so you should practice as if your mind is a mirror reflecting. Before you think, speak, or act, you should be reflecting. Is what I'm about to think, what I'm about to say, what about I'm about to do, is that going to be skillful, be lead to happiness for myself and others. And while you're doing it, while you're thinking or speaking or acting, you should reflect. After you speak or think or act, you should reflect. So this is really our job. And and for speech, the Buddha really lays it out, like how to reflect, what are we reflecting on? Like in terms of speech, I, I might have mentioned this briefly last week, is what we're about to say to somebody, is it the right time? So it's not even like, is it true? First, like, is this the right time to bring this up? And then, is it truthful? Is the way I'm about to mention this to this person, can I do it in a gentle way? Like, what's the tone? What's the body language like? Is it connected with what is good? So we're sort of, intuiting, like, what I'm about to say, what is that going to set in motion? Something good for me, for them? Something with good consequences, healing consequences, or not? And is the intention or the motive kindness, wanting to take care of myself and others? What is the intention, the flavor of the intention, motivation behind the words? So we can reflect on those things before we speak, while we're speaking, after we speak. Even if, even something that we said 30 years ago, or when I was a kid, you know, I, re, I still remember a few things I said to my siblings, mean things I said to my siblings, you know, some 50 years ago now. And, uh, you know, thinking back when I was seven or something like that, and I can even now, after the fact, I can reflect, was that timely? Was that true, what I said? Was that connected with what was good? Did it set something good in motion from a place of loving kindness? What was the tone? Snarky or gentle? You know, gotcha, that sort of gotcha. I, I had a talk once with one of, someone who teaches at Common Ground, a good friend, and uh, we, we were kind of talking about something that was difficult for us to talk about. And uh, I thought I made a really good point to her. <laughs> and, and it was really subtle, but she just saw it. And she says, 
oh, that's like a gotcha. I can do gotcha. You want to do gotcha? <laughs> but it was really good to see like, oh, yeah, because in that moment I saw, oh, yeah, I was kind of speaking the truth, but it was almost all about gotcha, gotcha. Like me up here, you down there, gotcha. Andy, I don't know if your son wants you. You want to sit up here, Amanda? Yeah, she's up here. So we want to we want to look at that commitment to truth all the way through. So the Buddha talks about, last week I mentioned four ways to practice speech. So we talked about commitment to truth and looking at that. And then using words as weapons, slander, using harsh or the kind of force in our speech, and idle speech. So I want to read what the Buddha says about these four areas. The last week I, I read what he said about speaking the truth, but tonight I want to do the others. So there's slander. So this is very easy for us to end. This is where we easily rationalize. It doesn't seem like we are, but we easily rationalize like using words to put down people. Ben, would you open a couple of the windows? Just a little bit. So the Buddha says, one avoids slanderous speech and abstains from it. What one has heard here, one does not repeat there, so as to cause dissension there. And what one has heard there, one does not repeat here, so as to cause dissension here. Thus one unites those that are divided, and those that are united he encourages. Concord gladdens one. One delights and rejoices in concord, and it is concord that one spreads by one's words. And this is true in this whole area of sila or ethical conduct. We want to both, like when we see we're speaking a falsehood, we want to develop the strength, that power in the mind, to refrain, to stop before we do it. Even if we've started doing it to stop, even if we've already done it, to make then amends, to fix it. And this is the force of restraint. But if that's our only force, it's a pretty inefficient, like if that's our only moral force in our mind, it's to stop from making mistakes. We also want to um, cultivate a positive ideal, like for you know, avoiding lies, this ideal, this value of truthfulness. So instead of just being afraid of slander, we want to think about like how our words can be used for healing. So you're about to have dinner with somebody or go see your parents. A lot of people start getting this around their parents when they're really old, right? It's like every time you visit, it still may not be easy being around your parents, but there's some sense of wholesome urgency when I'm with my parents, I want to speak, I want to interact in a way that's healing, that takes care of any unfinished business, because who knows how much time is left to heal what needs to be healed in the relationship. Now, that would be nice to have all the time when we go to work, whatever unfinished business there is. I've heard this said about our partnerships. My wife is here, that's why I keep pointing over here. (laughs) I don't know if people know Wynn, who's the other co-founder of Common Ground. 
teaches here when I can convince her to. So I've heard people say this about partnerships or marriages, that it's a nice uh, commitment or resolve, like if there's unfinished business, to name it, to the, at the very least to name it before you go to bed or before you leave, go your separate ways in the morning. Not to sort of feel like, well, we'll get around to taking care of that unfinished business later. Now, obviously when things are really hot, that may not be, may not be possible to address what's unfinished. But you can at least name it, right? Like, okay. We're, we're going to put it down for a while, and there's something unfinished here, right? Even that honesty is healing. So there's the power of restraint. There's the positive ideals that we can cultivate around right speech. So instead of like avoiding falsehoods, avoiding slander, avoiding harsh speech, avoiding idle chatter, think about those in terms of the positive ideal. And you'll see that in each statement, the Buddha talks both about what to refrain from and what to aim toward. So like, for example, with harsh speech, again, he'll say the same thing. First, he tells you what to refrain from. One avoids harsh language and abstains from it. One speaks such words that are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving such words as go to the heart and are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. Now imagine, like it's, this Thich Nhat Hanh has something in this sort of angle of things. He says, you know, when you're speaking with somebody, especially if you're having a disagreement, remember, like, what that person's going to look like in 300 years. Like the body, gone. Dust, bones, if anything, right? It's really hard to kind of hate or put down or want to hurt, when we see, like, even if we, if all we could do, just sort of see a quarter of an inch in, and see the blood pulsing through the capillaries, and arteries, and veins, and the beating heart, and the, just the extreme vulnerability of the physicality of the body, just knowing that, or knowing that that person was formed, took form in this culture with all of our cultural limitations or ignorance, right? I mean, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. That's the imprint. No, it's amazing. I mean, I've got Leave it to Beaver imprinted in my mind, and let alone my mother, the car, and <laughs> branded. Some of you know branded and Bonanza. These incredibly superficial, like the, I mean, not all bad values, of course, but just not very deep. And I'm not saying it's any better or worse. I don't really know how it is now. Actually, I, I don't know if I'd want to be raised now. But, you know, the, the kids, the young people just have to do the best they can with their cultural imprint that they're getting. But we can realize that whether it's a young person we're looking at or we're communicating, connecting with an older person, we can see the flesh underneath the skin, and we can intuit the cultural conditioning. And that whoever, whatever we're interacting with, it isn't some mean person, it's just the cumulative uh, results of that genetic code 
And that cultural imprint projecting or being reflected back and interpreted through my genetic code and cultural imprint. And it's messy. And it can break our heart wide open. So this is what the, the Buddha points to with this like breaking our heart and not like being tender. This is really this teaching around harsh speech. It's not just seeing how we're a bull in a china shop so much of the time, but realizing this value of wanting to be tender and gentle. Now, sometimes life is rough and people are in a really solid or fixed place and we're responsible for moving something, making something happen. And we might need a loud voice or a big force, emotional force. And that just might be the ticket, you know, where we have to stand up and say something and kind of wake up the crowd or wake up the other person. But that, those relatively rare times can be done with love and compassion and not hate, not like this piercing, wanting to destroy, but wanting to liberate somebody from their ignorance and we just happen to be the right person at the right time, we're at the right motivation, the right responsibility to do it. And then we do it because we're practicing not being afraid. But if you find you're always that person, breaking things up and speaking the truth, then you have to look to see what the underlying motivation is. And if you never do it, then you have to look. Like, why aren't I ever the one who speaks up, who says what needs to be said, and isn't afraid of somebody being hurt? Because sometimes that's good medicine for us, right? Somebody says something, it really hurts, but it changes our life in a really good way. So we need, sometimes that's like the equivalent of Western medicine coming in with the scalpel and opening things up and removing something that needs to be removed or repairing something that needs to be repaired, sometimes a good friend's words are that way. So we have to, we can't be simplistic. It has to be this ongoing reflection. And here's what the Buddha says about idle speech. One avoids idle chatter, abstains from it. One speaks at the right time in accordance with facts, speaks what is useful, speaks of the Dhamma, the way it is, and the discipline. So here, discipline doesn't mean, it's not necessarily the word that works best for us, because we think of discipline as some sort of fixed thing. But real discipline comes out of our, it's like the cumulative wisdom from our life experience, like what life has taught us. And then out of that, there's a set of, guidelines or principles that are internal, not a discipline that's imposed externally on us, like you should behave this way. It's like, I'm committed to this discipline because this is what I've learned from life. Don't lie, don't cheat, or whatever. Because in those experiences where I've cheated or I've observed other people cheating, I've seen the natural inevitable consequences of that approach to living. And I don't want that. So this is my discipline, not to cheat. We should be prepared, like because 
if young people were smart, they'd go up to adults who seem to be doing relatively well in life and they would say something like, what's your discipline? What has life taught you? What values are established deeply in your mind because they have been distilled hard-earned lessons from success and failure in your life and now they exist as deeply entrenched values that are based on reality, not based on cultural conditioning or based on somebody telling you or you wanting to live up to somebody else's values, but they're your own independent values. We should be prepared to say, this is what life has taught me. It's actually our responsibility. I mean, they may not ask, but it's our responsibility to, at the very least, model our values as a gift to everybody else. And it's not just the old, uh, you know, people who are older doing it for people who are younger, because a lot of your, those younger people around us, like in this room now, they have a lot of good modeling for, because I've noticed, you know, I sort of peak, and then it's sort of this sort of sense of getting tired, or I don't know, it's like, uh, I'm really appreciative of some of the younger people in our community who are on fire with the practice and being good human beings and not being afraid of discomfort, sort of trusting the sort of what we might call more idealistic values instead of wanting a bigger window in our living room so we get more sun or Gosh, I don't have a garage and I'm getting older and it'd be nice to have my car in a garage. And I see people, you know, in their 20s and 30s and even older riding their bike all the way through the winter and having values around, um, you know, activism that I just don't seem to have time for or other things. So people need to be modeling, sort of distilling and modeling our values for everyone. This is really part of the circle of giving and receiving that I talked about earlier, this commitment to this distillation. So now we're talking about it in terms of our relationship to speech. So these are the four areas for reflection. Truthfulness, speech as a weapon or a healing force, the kind of energy, the force, and you could include body language here too, like are we sort of using a big club as we use the energy of our voice in the world, world, or are we respectful? Like a sense of, we're all kind of fragile. You know, most of the time we're pretty fragile. Easy to cause harm. Not so easy to fix it. When we hurt somebody's feelings, when we set in motion some confusion, like I remember one of my teachers, Steve Armstrong, going on this Dharma riff about truthfulness and how easy it is, like how fragile clarity is, the truth is, and how easy it is for us to begin to bend it. I mean, you just look at popular culture and politics. It's like nobody seems to be wedded to this value of truthfulness. And it's just, so hard for us as a community of human beings to take care of what needs to be taken care of around racial injustice, around global climate change, around economic inequities. 
because everybody's lying. And we're so good at it, we don't even realize it anymore. It's just like part, well, I have to stretch the truth because they're stretching the truth. I have to put them down. I have to make demonize them because they're demonizing me. Even though they're just a fragile human being and we're just a fragile human being, we have to turn them into a monster. So we rationalize our using words as weapons or harshness, limiting, you know, not saying the whole truth. We do it around all kinds of issues. I see this like with the uh, abortion issue. It's so charged and polarizing. And it's, it's hard for those of us who might want women to be able to take care and make choices around their own body. It's hard for us to appreciate that it might be disturbing that those women we want to make their own choices, that some people might be deeply offended at the choices they make. They still may, we still may feel strongly that they should have the right but why can't we appreciate that that might be appalling for some people? That's not too, for me, you know, I've learned that that's not too far of a stretch to see that that's dis- that could be disturbing. In their worldview, that could be, and, and like frightening, like, well, where does it end? There's a very interesting article. Again, in that email we sent out, we sent out some links to some really interesting things around difference. And one of the links was given to me from uh, Nicole Terrace, who teaches here at Common Ground, one of our leaders and teachers. And she's been in a wheelchair since she's a little girl. You might have seen her here sometimes. And, uh, and she sent me this wonderful article that's in that email we sent out to the community where some of you know Peter Singer, who I think may still be a professor at Princeton University. And um, he's very controversial as a professor around... Uh, ethics, animal rights, and uh, issues around disability, including parents questioning whether parents should have the right to end the life of a child who's born with uh, a lot of disability, cognitive, physical. And then this is a converse, this article is a conversation written by a woman who had this ongoing conversation with Peter Singer, both you know, over email and phone, but also in public, a conversation in public um, with him. And she's a very disabled person, uh, physically disabled person, who had this conversation with Peter Singer around this question of where does that right to end a life end? Why not? You know, because how much money is going to be spent and that money could be used in other ways. So this, so we want to, this is part of that tenderness and that respect. Like, where is the truth? Part of this valuing the truth is realizing that nobody actually owns it. Nobody really knows the truth. And so when we speak our truth, we realize how fragile it is. It's like, this is my truth right now from this experience, this moment, this cumulative moment. And then that's it. I don't know if it's my truth in the next moment, but right now this is my truth. And we can not be so tied or fixed to it because we realize it's a fragile thing. So I want to save some time. We have 15 minutes tonight. It'd be nice to reflect on speech, what you've learned, 
And we learn a lot from mistakes. So it would be nice to hear from your mistakes, your successes around the value of truthfulness, slander, gentleness, harshness, tenderness, idle speech, speech that's really like a kind of medicine. We use the right speech at the right time, not just, uh, uh, you know, sort of mindless about our words. I see this all the time. This is one of my real places of leakage. Not so much out here, but with my wife, just sort of saying things that don't need to be said, you know, just sort of filling up space, space with speech. So, be nice to hear from folks. Please, if you don't mind, say your name if you have some thoughts to share or question about the talk tonight. Yeah. Um, I was Miranda, and um, I guess I have two things. One is just, I appreciate what you said about, um, like, truthfulness. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned is, not that I've told so many lies, but I think, um, I never, I didn't think before about how much lying hurts the person who lies. Um, and when you're talking about the fragility of truth, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, like, I feel like I, I try to live that way, and then I experience, when you come up against, like, harsh rhetoric in people or organizations, and, you, and like, you know, when I'm in those situations and I try, I'm kind of like, well, you know, trying to be fluid, and the other person or entity is, like, not interested in that fluidity. I don't, it's, I, I, I don't really know what to do. Yeah. And it may be that it's like there's two principles that you bring up in your comment. Is it Glenda? Yeah, so Glenda was just talking about, you know, how about that fragility of truth when the person we're interacting with is in a re- seems, appears to us to be in a really tight, maybe fearful or reactive place. And if we have this principle that the truth lies in us speaking together and that like everything gets put on the table, like this is the power of the circle or sometimes this council style sharing where everybody's voice is heard and the truth to some degree at least emerges from the collective, like people speaking. And it's not that we have to try hard, it's more about everybody seeing it from their perspective. And there's actually scientific research about like when we're trying to discern what's right, it's like many, the more voices, the more perspectives, when you can get them all together, there's something deeply intuitive about that collect, the collectedness of those different voices. That's very interesting. But how do you do that when somebody's really fearful or tight? So part of like getting everything on the table is doing that healing, like building the trust. And you know, at Common Ground, we've started in different ways to have more difficult conversations around race, around difference, around issues of accessibility and who feels comfortable being here, part of the community, and who doesn't feel comfortable And a lot of the work has been um, learning how to feel safe speaking our truth. So that may be what you have to do is like building the relationship, not be so keen on solving the problem at hand, 
that doing more of the foundational work, how can we learn to recognize in each other another human being? And there are tricks, you know, like playing together or doing some things together or even singing together. You know, it's surprising that when people do something together, it's hard to be in this reactive, I'm putting you in a box, you're putting me in a box, and so I don't, that box I don't trust and you don't trust this box, so we don't really communicate. Yeah. I'm sure other people have thoughts about that too. Yes. My name is Jim. Uh, my question is with uh, generosity. Every so often, someone will ask for my help and my generosity. And my honest feeling is that if I help this person, it's it's not going to be good for them. So, you know, sometimes I allow them to do something that's not helpful, not good for them, or to continue to be exploited by someone. And um, when, I've, when I've said these things honestly to the people, they generally have a very negative reaction. And I, I found myself that I usually just end up saying no, and I don't, I don't actually help them in any way, either the way they ask or the way they might be. I'm not actually helping them because I feel like... I know you Did you say Jim is your name? Yeah. Did people hear Jim? So I bet we all have this. I mean, some in some situations, maybe in your situation, Jim, it's more intense or poignant. But even in little ways, like driving up to an intersection and somebody asking us for money and some sense that they might spend the money on drugs or alcohol or something like that, and uh, and also maybe maybe we don't want to admit it, but maybe feeling a little um, oppressed by them putting us in this difficult situation where we have to say no or we have to deal with the fact that there's somebody who has needs. Because part of the experience of privilege is feeling that we can be apart. And this is true with our relatives and those people, like it or not, who are in our lives, our neighbors, there, there are these people who we can't, you know, we don't know when, but they are going to just show up in our lives and they're going to say, I need this, help me. And then it's too late for us to say, I don't want my life to be this way. I don't want to be in this situation because we are in that situation. And depending on the person, one thing we can do is we can be honest with them, which is, I'm uncomfortable. Because we are. And so if you have a certain, if it's somebody you're relatively close to, we can just say, I'm uncomfortable. Sometimes like when somebody comes up to me in a parking lot and they have that story of uh, the car broke down and they need to take a bus or something like that. I'm sure some of you have had that experience. It's, I don't think it's that uncommon. What I sometimes say to the person is, this has happened to me before and I never know whether I can trust the person. So I feel really awkward. I want to I wanna help, but I, but I don't, and it's true, I don't want to be taken advantage of. And so I'm confused. And that feels good. I, I still don't know whether I should help the person out or not, but 
It's like I speak the truth as best I can to the person. And then generally, I think in that situation, generally I say, and so I've just made this decision that I don't give money in this situation because I'm confused and it hasn't felt good when I have in the past. And then when the person comes to me at the corners, Wynn and I have been buying in bulk protein bars, you know, the, and uh, the cliff bars, I guess. And we keep them in our glove compartment because I, I don't want to say no but I don't feel comfortable giving money. So I hand them a couple protein bars. And I have an engagement that the aftertaste feels okay in my heart. I don't have an unpleasant aftertaste from it. And I'm hoping they also don't have an unpleasant aftertaste from that interaction that we have. And then the more sticky situation that you bring up, Jim, that's more sticky you know, but I think you might experiment with being honest with them about how you feel and even uh, to be honest about uh, to yourself. You may not be able to say to them that I don't like being vulnerable to other people's needs. You know, in the same way when we're watching late night TV, we don't have a TV anymore, but in the days when we did, you watch TV at night, you get those long commercials about some child that you can sponsor and take care of. And uh, and then what do you... It's like you'd rather not be reminded that the money you have in the bank could be put to use in some way. But why not be reminded? Like, why not have some... that sort of poignant feeling like I'm saving for retirement and by doing that I mean, it means I'm not addressing the other things I could address with this money. Because that's the reality. So is it better to be unaware of that reality or to be aware of it? Because it, this is what breaks our heart open. doesn't mean we should always say, yes, I save up. I'm saving up for retirement. But I don't feel good about it. You know, I don't, but I, I feel better about saving up than not saving up. But there's some real tension in my heart and that feels appropriate. Like there should be having wealth even if you don't feel like relative to other people you're wealthy, but having some economic privilege should have should leave us with some interesting feeling in our heart that keeps us awake, keeps us showing up. So this is what I meant about truth being fragile. Like So we don't just tell ourselves it's okay, so we don't have to look at it ever again. Like One of the ways I'll do that is, well, when I die, I'm just going to give all my money away. Well, to my wife if I die first, but... (laughs) 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 But, you know, oh yes, they're going to get it in the end. And I'm frugal, so I'm not going to waste it. But I see that that's just like a way of avoiding that poignant feeling of what it's like to have money in the bank when there are people in real need. And it, I, when I keep that in mind, I feel much more raw and awake and connected with reality. Yeah, Tom. Yes, it is. <laughs> I have had temptations, which I will admit I've been to on more than one occasion, to 
why? Deductions. Uh, <coughs> and it feels bad, so I stop doing that. But then I get this sense of moral outrage sometimes, you know, because I've done a little study, I know a little bit about the inequities in this society, and I know that if I had an oil trust or something like that, that I might be able to write off my income altogether. My income was in the millions. Unfortunately, it's not. Um, so, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. I'm just, uh, since that's what we're discussing, I was going to deal with that kind of assault. You know, you have to crack open your heart and say, hey, I don't want to give any more money. I might buy a cruise missile. And and, I, and this guy, you know, living in the mansion isn't paying anything. And yet, I have to make a decision. And I'll probably get away with it. And then we'll have to end here. But it is simple on what, I mean, the, the, the informational part of it is not simple, but it is simple in terms of our heart because when we cheat, whether we get away with it or not, we know what we're doing and we know why we're doing it. Like the motivation, whether we're conscious of it or not, leaves an imprint in the mind. So if we're being stingy, you know, it's not fair. I deserve this or whatever kind of, whatever that expression of stinginess is, that's a tight feeling. It's a self-centered tight feeling and it gets reinforced. It becomes more of what the mind does. There's all kinds of ways. If we have a problem with what the government is doing, there are all kinds of ways to do something about that. So I think this is what my deal around taxes is, is I don't want that stingy feeling in my heart. So I want to play by the rules, even though the system is not just. It is the system I live in and I don't want a stingy heart. So I keep in mind there are a lot of people who benefit from these dollars I give to the government. There's a lot of good things that are done with that money and a lot of bad things that are done with that money. So why am I only paying attention to things that are bad that are done with that money? You know, I can pay attention to the good things that are done with that money and I can be an active citizen about the bad things that are being done with that money. And I can spend some money on top of my taxes to promote a better society, a better government. So this is, you know, this is how we take care of ourselves and everybody. Because the only reason this culture, this society is better than others is because people stuck their neck out. And when people want to give up, well, it won't work. If you give up on your marriage, it's not going to work. If you give up on your family of origin, it's not going to... Healing takes engagement. And it's the same thing with our... It may seem impossible, but giving up is, makes it less likely <laughs> that things positive things are going to happen. Engagement is what changes things. And being a force for straightforwardness and honesty, right... 
because all you have to do is talk to people who live in cultures where every where it's much more corrupt and nothing happens unless you bribe. I mean, nobody wants to go to that world. So this sort of integrity of paying our taxes, even in a system that's far from being perfect, I just to me it makes a lot of sense, just from my direct experience. But not always. But I do it because in the long run, it always makes sense when I deep reflect deeply about it. So let's take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Each of us in our own way, commit to picking up this reflection through the weeks. Thanks, everyone. Nice to be here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.